Good morning, everyone. This is Jeffy Kennedy. I'm here with my first cup of coffee here on Tuesday, August 4th. And today is a special day because we have a celebrity guest. Leslie Penelope is here, who writes as L. Penelope. Good morning, Leslie. Good morning, Jeffy. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. It's a rainy day here in Maryland, but it's mm. nice. Is, is rain a good thing there or is it like uh, more rain? It's, well, we've been having a very rainy summer and it looks like all week it's going to be thunderstorms. So we had a drought last year, so I guess we should be grateful for the rain this year. But you're not feeling the grateful? I mean, I, you know, I always <laughs> like it when it's sunny out. <laughs> Do you get outside a lot? Are you an outdoor person? Not really, no. Uh -huh. I am not, I don't, I, yes, I would not consider myself an outdoor person. Um, since I started rock climbing, I have gone outdoors a little bit more um, to climb outside. And, you know, I, I do like hiking, but I don't like bugs. Ah. We actually just built an entire screened in porch on our deck so that I could enjoy the outside without enjoying the bugs. <laughs> Because your husband is, is tired of hearing you go on about the bugs or because he just loves you that much? Well, he wanted it too. He was, I don't know exactly what his reasons were because he's not bothered by bugs in the least. Um, no. So it was a mutual decision. We each had our own individual separate reasons, I think, uh, <laughs> for watching the screen porch. Well, I saw the photos of it on Instagram and it looks beautiful. It's lovely. I, I love going out there to read. Specifically, I just wanted another place to read that wasn't in my house. <laughs> but not to write. I haven't really written out there. I've done a couple of Zoom meetings out there when I get tired of just being in my office. Because um, we're also tired of Zoom. Yeah, yeah. And so a different location helps with the Zooming, the constant Zooming. Yeah. Um, but I have I, I've intended to go out there and write, and I just haven't made it out yet. Hmm. So, so tell us a little bit about your writing routine. Do you write at about the same time every day? Yeah, I try to. Um, the best advice I'd ever gotten about writing is to do it first. And that was from Margie Lawson, who teaches these great classes. And it sounds very simple, but it really was a revelation to me. And I was like, oh, yeah, do it first. Like, literally, do it first, and it will get done. So I try to write in the mornings. Um, first thing, don't, you know, without opening email or checking social media whenever possible, and so these days I'm writing either 7.30 or 8 a.m. And I do it for two to three hours, depending on the rest of my day. Uh, I try to get at least a scene or two scenes done, whatever I'm working on. And then it's done and I can focus on other things. So do you, do you set a goal to work for a couple of scenes or do you go for a particular word count or just however, long, however much you get done in like two hours? It depends on the stage of writing. So when I'm first drafting, I do word count. I try to, um, and word count based on the scene. So I'm not going to stop necessarily in the middle of a scene. If I hit my 2,000 or 3,000 words or whatever, I will write to the end of that. Uh, but so yeah, I would do a word count goal. If I'm fast drafting, um, you know, I'll probably try to for 2,500 to 3,000 words a day. But now I'm revising. And so I'm doing um, scenes. And so I've kind of split up, you know, I've gone to my deadline and I've looked backwards and said, okay, I've got 30 days to do 50 scenes. So however many scenes a day that is, that's what I'm going to get done. Oh, 
that sounds um you're you're I think in some ways a much more analytical writer than I am, maybe in many ways. I'm analytical, but I don't do the intense tracking that you do. Like I love my spreadsheets, but I don't I've started trying to track like my time with this revision so I'll know how long it's taking me to do certain things because I don't have a good idea about that, which I think is something that you do do pretty well. But I am fairly analytical about a great many things. <laughs> Just <my> personality. <laughs> That's just, this is true. I'm always uh, amused when I listen to your podcast and I hear you talk about like going through and analyzing for the conflict in each scene and that sort of thing. And I just sort of shake my head. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know that you do it very intuitively and I, I trust my intuition, but I want to verify, you know. <laughs> Oh, I like that, that you should have put that on like a cross stitch. Trust your intuition, but verify. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so what are you revising right now? So I'm working on the fourth book of my series, Earthsinger Chronicles. This one is called Requiem of Silence, and it's going to be coming out next year. Okay. And the third book is coming out next week. Yes. The third book is Cry of Metal and Bone, and it comes out August 11th. Very excited about that. It's been a long time coming. Yeah, because it got pushed back and delayed a bit, right? It got pushed back. So, you know, initially I self-published the series and this third book was going to come out. I had sent it to the copy editor and this was back in 2016. And the day I sent it to the copy editor was the day that my editor at St. Martin's offered me uh, the deal to republish the series with St. Martin's Press. And so uh, this book, you know, it was originally going to come out in 2016, the self-published version. So yeah, from that delay. And then um, once St. Martin's Press was involved in publishing the first two books, this one ended up getting pushed back a few months because of publisher things also. Yeah, there's always publisher things. <laughs> right. <laughs> so so I want to talk to you some about your path that way, because a piece of advice that we always give people is, if you think you want to sell a series to Trad, don't self-publish it first because Trad's just never going to pick up a mm -hmm. series that's already started on self-pub. Right. And, and, and we'll say occasionally it happens, but don't count on it. But there are these rare cases where it happens and you are one of those rare cases. I am. Yeah. And it, it wasn't my goal to self-publish and then get picked up by Trad at all. That wasn't on my radar. Um, I, I initially self-published because I had a history of just doing DIY stuff. I was an independent filmmaker. I had co-founded an independent literary magazine and edited that for a while. Oh, and I didn't so, know that. Yeah. I, when I got married, we moved down to Virginia, and I didn't know anyone, and I'm an introvert, and I started taking these writing classes. And that's kind of how I got back into writing more seriously as an adult, from these, these ongoing writing workshops. And so I met a bunch of writers and a few of us got together and decided to, to start a literary magazine. Um, it was called The Quotable. And so I was actually the publisher and uh, co-fiction editor, which meant because I had a technical background, I'm a, I'm a web developer in my day job. And uh, so I would put together the magazine. I laid out the print version. I laid out the ebook. I made the website, of course, and I figured out how we could do subscriptions and I sent out the you know print versions to our subscribers. I did a lot of stuff. So I had that in my background um, and we the magazine ran for almost six years. Which is a pretty good run. It was. I thought so. And it was great to be able to 
It also helps to have sort of that slush, um, what do they call it? The slush pile experience of reading yes. all the submissions and seeing what people thought was finished work <laughs> and like the, <laughs> the various range of, of what people thought was uh, publishable. Um, and what was not. And, and yeah, what they thought was publishable was in many times, many cases, not publishable. But there was a lot of wonderful work that we were able to publish and find, you know, a small readership for. And that felt really good. Um, and so getting that editing experience, because I had edited, you know, literary magazines through high school and college. And, you know, I was always interested in, in writing. I, I didn't know if I wanted to edit. Um, and I think doing the Lit Mag made me realize I really didn't want to edit. So I stepped back from the editing at a certain point and just continued the publishing and, um, you know, putting together the issues. But um, so, yeah, when I, you know, was writing my first novel that I was going to finish, the first novel I actually finished, it was natural for me to self-publish it because I had all this experience in at least, you know, making the ebook and making the print book and being confident that I could make a good product that was going to look professional on a shelf somewhere. Right. So traditional publishing had not been on my radar. I I had been through several writing workshops. Um, Vona is one for uh, authors of color, and then Hurston Wright is for black writers. And just heard kind of horror stories about experiences in publishing and um, compromises that especially black and brown people were asked to make. Um, and so I didn't want to go through any of that. And I wasn't sure that traditional publishing wanted what I was writing. So I was just like, I'll just do it myself. And it made perfect sense to me. So I did a, I spent a long time researching self-publishing. I spent over a year listening wow. to podcasts, reading blogs, reading books, um, searching for cover designers and editors. And just kind of, I was in, um, you know, listservs and Facebook groups and things like that just doing my research, collecting all these different resources so that when the time came, I would have places to go. And I, you know, I would know, kind of be able to put together the team of, of people that I knew I would need to create the most professional product that I could. And so then you published your, your first book, which was called Song of Blood and Stone is the first thing I published. Okay. And did it, there. and did it take off? It did better than I thought. I mean, I had very low expectations because I had heard that statistic that most self-published books don't sell more than like 200 or 250 copies ever. And then mostly to like your friends. <laughs> right. So I was like, okay, well, if I sell more than 250 copies, I will be winning in the game. <laughs> that was my goal. <laughs> and I actually did that within the first month. So I was super excited about that. Like people I didn't know were actually finding out about the book and buying it. It wasn't like a runaway bestseller at, or anything like that, but I was really happy with the sales and I was, you know, pushing myself to finish the series so that I could really um, promote a finished series. Like I was doing some promotions and doing the sort of best practices of the time. So this was 2015 and running ads um, like the, not the, I don't even think, I mean, Facebook ads were a thing. I don't know if Amazon ads even existed in any real way at that point. But I don't think so. I'm not sure when those kicked in, but I think you're right. I think that was a little later. Yeah. But the, the, the lists, the like um, e-reader news today type email lists, I never got a book bub um, on my own, but yeah, those, those sorts of things. So I was selling copies and I was happy with it and it was slow, but steady. And then, and so you were, 
you had you published the second book in the series? Yes. So I published two books in the series that year. Actually, 2015, I published a total of four books, two novels and two novellas. And then it was the beginning of 2016 when I got an email from the editor at St. Martin's Press. And Just it was actually out of the blue. Out of the blue. Through my website email form, it came in. <laughs> And um, she had just, she introduced herself. She said that she had seen the books. She had been searching for something else. I think she said she was searching for a book by N.K. Jemison. And maybe one of my ads came up in the also bots. And that wasn't an ad. It would have been just like an also bot or something like that, where she saw my cover for Song of Blood and Stone. And she was intrigued enough and she actually bought it. She bought the first two books that were out at the time and read them and really liked them and contacted me um, initially about whatever I was working on next, like my next series. Right, right. So that, that ha- you know, I used to tell people don't try this at home because this sort of bolt from the blue thing you can't really plan on, you can't strategize for. Absolutely not. But my, my very first book was an essay collection and it happened to me in much the same way that the editor contacted me because she'd read one of my essays and said, am I in time to publish your first book? And I was like, you know, holy wow. And then she said, um, so do you have a book? And I was like, um, no. <laughs> so so the editor at St. Martin's said, so what else do you have? And I was like, oh, uh, it was kind of like the same thing. Like, I don't have anything else. Right now. I'm trying to write these four books. Uh, but I had ideas. I have an endless supply of ideas. And so I was like, well, I let me send you a proposal. Let me get, give me a few months. Um, so I think she initially contacted me in January. And sometime in March, I sent her a proposal, which was a synopsis and the first three chapters of something I had just written, something new that I was, I was still excited <laughs> about, but I hadn't, I didn't have any plans to do anything with that idea anytime soon. And so then what happened? But she ended up not doing that. Right. Yes. So uh, I didn't hear from her from her for a while. So I was continuing, you know, working on book three of Earthsinger Chronicles, and um, eventually I did hear back from her about that. And she said she liked the proposal. Um, she had some good things to say about it. But what what was really stuck in her heart was Song of Blood and Stone. She really loved that book, and she, you know, she thought that if she published it with St. Martin's, she could bring it to a wider audience. And would I consider republishing it with them? Um, and I had not expected that. Like, obviously, just like you said, it was something that didn't seem like a real possibility. Um, but I thought about it and I talked to some people about it and I was like, well, yeah, I mean, it obviously they have a much bigger reach than I have. And even though I love self-publishing, this is an opportunity that seemed too good to pass up, you know, to have that experience with traditional publishing was something that was really, you know, interesting to me at the very least and exciting. And so I ended up saying yes. And so then did you take down the books right away? Not right away. Uh, Cause the, the contract took a long time to come. So uh, I didn't have an agent at that point. Uh, I do have a lot of friends who are lawyers and one of them recommended a literary attorney. <laughs> and so, cause that my first thing was like, how am I going to do this? What? I don't even know anything about, about trad pub. I spent so long researching indie pub I did not do any research on trad. So I I talked to this attorney and she had a lot of experience and she was, she really helped me through the entire process. Um, And so it took six or seven months for the contract to come. And I didn't have to take the books off the market until I signed the contract with them. 
So, oh. and that was, you know, I was worried about that. I was like, yeah, um, taking them off the market, you lose the momentum and the sales, obviously. But I was like, well, I did publish four books in 2015, so I can publish a bunch more self-published stuff by the time this book comes out, which didn't end up happening. But that was my thought process. So, yeah. I, I was laughing as you said that because we always think, oh, well, right. this will be easy. It's like, oh, no. <laughs> Not so much. Not so much. Um, and for a lot of different reasons. But um, yeah, so at the end of 2016, I took the two books that were on the market off the market. and. Um, yeah, that was how it went down. And I know that you ended up eventually signing with Sarah Megabo for your agent. Um, and yes. and she's some, and I love her. I think she's just great. She's amazing. Yeah, that came later. So I did, I negotiated the contracts with the help of the attorney and that was all signed and done. And a few months later, my editor uh, came back to me and, sh- and she was like, uh, Leslie, have you considered getting an agent? And I was like, not really. <laughs> We've already signed the contracts. What do I need an agent for? Um, but she was like, it, you know, it would help you focus on the writing and your agent could help you focus on the business stuff. And I was like, oh, well, that makes sense, I guess. But if I can find an agent now that I've already signed the contracts. So right. why had, would anybody want me now? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like I'm not going to make them any money for quite a while. It's a four book deal. I, you know, I had to revise them and I didn't, you know, yeah, that, that was a big concern of mine. Um, and so my editor gave me you know, a list of agents to consider, and I started trying to reach out to them. And I reached out to author friends. And it was actually through Rebecca Roanhorse, who is uh, an author with Sarah Megabo. She recommended her agent, and she put me in touch with her. And Sarah just says- And Rebecca lives in my same town. Oh, she does? Oh, I didn't realize yeah. that. Yeah. I've never met Rebecca in real life, but um, we- and, we were in a group because we had both been to the same workshop with the same teacher. Uh, ah. the workshop. And so there was a, a Facebook group for students of, um, we, we took a class with Marjorie Liu, who's an amazing author. Marjorie's and, great. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I was in this group and I was like, I need my agent. Who's an agent? Help me. <laughs> and me. Um, and Sarah was, was fantastic. And of the people that I talked to and considered, she was the one that didn't, that made me feel the best about the idea that I wasn't going to make her any money for a little while. You know, she <laughs> really reiterated that she was with authors for their career. And I, I you know, I, I felt a little bit less guilty and I felt really comfortable with her. I feel like that's really important in an agent. And it's one reason that I love Sarah too, mm-hmm. um, because not every agent is like that. Absolutely not. Yeah, I had met with a couple of like bigger agents that I was really excited about and I felt dismissed. I was sort of, I asked, you know, like, okay, how do you feel about this, this situation that we're in where, you know, I don't know when the next book I'm going to make is, I'm going to write is. And one woman in particular was kind of like, oh, well, you know, I'd really just be focused on on your next book, sort of indicating that she wouldn't help me through the process of this book. And this was right before the song was going to be published. Um, whereas Sarah was like, oh, well, let me tell you about all these things about publishing that you need to know about. And she was really interested in educating me and walking me through the process. And I just felt a lot more supported. Yeah, that's really cool. And and it's kind of an aside thing. But one thing I love about Sarah Megabo is when she hugs you, you can feel that she really means it. Yeah. Yeah. Sincerity is just kind of her thing. Like you never feel. <laughs> it's totally her shtick. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it is. She's a very sincere person, and I, I, I value that about her. Yeah, she's great. So 
so you sign the contract and you're you know getting sarah for your agent she's giving you advice and saint martin's is getting ready to republish the books and they were not exactly the same right as when as your self-published versions oh no not at all i went through a big revision so i'm trying to remember the first there have been a lot of stages to this process were you expecting to revise was that something that you talked about from the get-go um yes she did and initially she was like she, uh, my, my editor is Monique Patterson at St. Martin's and she indicated that she had some notes you know she loved Song of Blood and Stone she had read and she loved Whispers to the second book Whispers of Shadow and Flame but she did have some notes and I expected that a new editor would want to you know put her fingers in it and and improve it and I was excited about actually um, working with her to improve the book I, I had you know I had gone through a developmental edit and a copy edit um, when it was self published but. I still knew that the, I I had a long I had a long way to go in terms of growing as a as a writer and as an author. So and I was one about, of the big reasons to do trad is to have a right. real professional editor, you know, like working for free. I'm putting in that in air quotes, but <laughs> yeah, very much in air quotes. <laughs> <laughs> and and she has a wonderful reputation. I had been hearing about her for years. And different people had said, oh, Leslie, you should really think about submitting something to her. And I was like, oh, well, if I ever deal with trad, then I'll think about that. But it wasn't on my radar. Um, So, yeah, she had, you know, we worked together. Um, She sent me a long edit letter, (laughs) you know, kind of get those edit letters and you want to cry. You're like, I worked on this book for years already, but um, (laughs) sure, I could do this again. (laughs) And, yeah, so it was. I like to say that the book, I I changed like 60% of it, but the story is exactly the same, which (laughs) it makes sense to me. So yes, I I know. I I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. And I do feel like it's, it, it became a stronger book. Um, and I, I enjoyed that process of, of working with her that, and then, um, so yeah, the book, the first book initially came out in hardcover in, I believe May of 2018. And then so there are three versions of Song of Blood and Stone, the self-published <laughs> version, the hardcover version. A few months later, I think it was actually at the RWA conference in July, um, I met with Monique in person. And that might have been the first time we'd met in person. And um, she had broached the idea of a special edition. Mm. And uh, so initially, that you know, it came out in hardcover. They were marketing it as fantasy, not as romance. When I was self-publishing it, I was thinking it's oh, this is a romance. Uh, it's a fantasy romance, and that's kind of how I initially thought about it. Her perspective was looking at the market and um, targeting the adult fantasy market. But the sales were soft initially. That's how they put it. They <laughs> like you're underperforming sales wise. <laughs> I love it when they say things like that. Well, your sales were soft. Like I'm like, oh, and then you're you all dejected. Like I failed. It, it's nice of them tell you that your sales sucked, but <laughs> yes, it's a very nice way to put that. And I, I like I like that euphemism. <laughs> so the sales were soft, and she wanted to relaunch it um, in paperback, in trade paperback. And sort of bring it out again as a slightly different product. So her idea was to do a special edition, sort of like a director's cut um, with additional material. Now, the issue is I don't write a lot of additional material. It's not like I have a ton of deleted scenes. I tend to write very lean. And then each revision, I'm adding things. Yeah, I'm the same. Yeah. And, uh, And so I was like, okay, this is an interesting idea. I don't 
know how I would do that. Um, and she gave me a suggestion of adding additional storyline to broaden the world and to deepen the story and to just show you more about it. And so that's what I did. I spent the next three months um, doing another revision on it. So the main storyline is 99% the same, but I did add an additional storyline. And since I I had three books written when I initially got the contract with St. Martin's, so I was able to pull some things that I was going to do later uh, in book three and put them into book one in terms of like seeding the ground for the storyline that was going to come in book three. And that's how I made the additional storyline that's in the special edition of Song of Blood and Stone. And then we published the third version of it as the trade paperback. <laughs> and you're never, ever going to revise that book ever again. I don't want to the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't imagine having done that many versions of one book. I think that would, that would be excruciating. Yeah. It was a lot. It was, I mean, it was, it was a lot. It was a, I had a deadline. Um, it was a short time period. It was a lot to break apart a book that was on the shelves and people were yeah. reading it and create a storyline that would add to it. But that if you didn't read it and you moved on to the next books, it wasn't, you know, you would still understand what was going on because even though the sales were soft, people had bought it, you know, um, and right. I couldn't expect all of those people to read the book again necessarily when the new when the new version came out. So it was just a huge challenge. It was probably the hardest thing I'd ever had to, I've ever done as a as a writer. I bet. Have you ever gotten pushback from readers on that? Has anybody ever said how come there's these uh, different versions? Not real, not strong pushback. There's there've been questions about it, and um, people who haven't like there's the storyline that I added is about a character named Ella. And so I'll hear from people who are like, Oh, I can't imagine this book without Ella in it. And people are like, wait, who's Ella? I don't know. I, I didn't read that book. So <laughs> you're making Ella like, up. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, <laughs> so I haven't had like angry, angry feedback, but there have been questions and there has been confusion about it, which I was, I was worried about. And yeah. sort of like, there's no way around the confusion. Um, but the message, it's hard to get the message out to people who've already purchased a book and it's on their shelves that, hey, there's this new version out. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, my assistant, Corrine, is a, a rabid reader and she loves your books. And she, but one of her great complaints about the publishing industry is how they're always coming up with like a new version of the book in a different format with like a, a little bit of new content so that she's having to buy the same book over and over. Right. Yeah. And I was like, there are people, there are people who have bought it three times. And yeah. I, I mean, my, th I guess that means that they really like it, but I do feel bad that they've had to buy it three times. Right. It's like, thank you. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, so that's funny with this August 11th, that's really going to be a real milestone for you that you're finally sort of like catching up to this lap of something that you'd originally have ha planned to have happened four years ago. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the, the second book, it wasn't, I didn't consider it a cliffhanger at all. It was, the story ended, but it ended um, in the middle, kind of. So if the people who originally read Whispers when it was self-published and have been waiting for many years for the third book, it's, yeah, it's been a long time coming. 
and getting to, to complete that story is is really great. Yeah, well, congratulations. Thank you. And then so now you're revising book four, and I bet that feels like you're finally getting to move forward. Yes, yes. Book four, book four has been hard because it took so long for me to be able to write it. Because um, I did the revisions on books one and two um, for St. Martin's and three. I revised three also. So uh, when I was, you know, I'd been planning to start book four and it just took forever. And so by the time I got back into it, it was like, okay, now what is this book going to be? <laughs> and then the pressure of ending the series, it's the last one. Um, so yeah. It Which was, is hard. It's, it's a huge challenge. I've I've never ended a series before. <laughs> Um, and ended such a large series with so many threads, so many characters, so much going on. Um, yeah, book four is is kind of been kicking my ass. Yeah. So after you're done with that, then you get to move on to new projects. Yay! I cannot Yay. tell you how wonderful that is. The idea, the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, as much as I love this series and I've spent such a long time on it, I'm so excited to do something new. Well, I know that you believe in a lot of the same things that I do about just how energy works and creative energy and making stuff happen in your life that sort of go, doing this thing where you've been cycling over the same thing for a while. I bet this is going to be a massive release of energy for you to get this fourth oh, book yeah. done. And yeah, because I feel like I've been holding on. Yeah, I think you're yeah. right. Like you've just been holding on to script. I've had to live in this world. I have to keep the story in my head. And then when I turn this, turn this in and, and, and I'm done, and I'll, it'll just be a huge release, like you said. And I, I can't even imagine what that will be like yet. <laughs> <laughs> so can you talk about what's next or is it still secret? It's not secret. It's just unknown. <laughs> I'm oh, okay. really excited about a new idea that is germinating, but I don't have the mental energy to really – uh, expand on it. And I've talked about it a little on my podcast. I have this idea to do this um, 1920s fantasy heist. Right. All I have, I've been doing research on the 20s and I'm formulating the characters and the idea slowly over time. Um, you know, I think if I'm the spreadsheet queen, you are the research queen. I, well, I haven't, I don't know. I don't do, I do research, but it's not like I'm a historical author in terms of you know, th this series is historical fantasy, Earthsinger. So I've made up a lot of stuff, even as I've tried to ground it in real history. Um, but this is the first time I'm doing like legit history. I really feel like it's going to have to be a little bit more accurate and a little bit yeah. more intense than, than before. <laughs> and is Sarah enthused about the idea or have you talked to her about it yet? Not Sarah. Yeah, you're Sarah too. My Sarah. two Sarahs. Yeah. So I had given Sarah a list of everything that I was working on. Um, and I've updated over the years. This is a relatively new idea because I thought I was going to be trying to finish one of my many in-progress projects. And um, so I haven't talked to Sarah that much about this. I mentioned I have this heist idea, but I don't have much on it. And she's like, okay, well, let me know. Um, so I think, I mean, the, the little tiny bit I told her she was excited about. Um, but I, I really did think I was going to be going back to one of my in-progress manuscripts. And I just ended up not being able to do that. Like I, I've tried, I've gone back to a couple of different ones. And I think that just new, fresh, brand new is is the thing I need to be focused on right now. Yeah. And, and often that's the case. I know you were talking on your podcast about the one and seeing the old manuscript that you were seeing if you could revise. 
-hmm. And I messaged you and when you said that you just really petered out on it and I messaged you and said, well, I told you it would have been much easier to rewrite it from the beginning because revising that old stuff never works. And you said, did you tell me that out loud or just in your head? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, huh, might have been just in my head. (laughs) I mean, either way, I I have a very bad memory, but I feel like if you told me that out loud, I would have listened to you. No, I probably like thought it at your podcast and expected (laughs) you to hear me. Right. (laughs) Because, yeah, that, that was absolutely – I had gone back and forth about, should I start over from scratch? I have all of these words written, and they were just calling to me. I'm like, oh, but they're such nice words. I can do I know, and it's words. all that work, and you feel like I should be able to take advantage of those words. Right. I spent a long time writing those words. Yeah, but, and it just doesn't work. I don't yeah. know why. Yeah, I, and I think I, I still love the idea, and if I ever go back to it, it will have to be 100% from scratch. I, you're right about that. I have a novel like that that I've been, you know, wrote, oh God, I don't know, um, probably 10 years ago now and tried to sell and couldn't sell and couldn't sell more than 10 years ago. Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I still love this concept and I know I'm going to write it someday. And when I do, I'm going to make myself do that. I'm not going to look at any of the documents and I'm just going to start over and write it fresh. And I have um, at least two manuscripts that are like that that I really love, I want to go back to, because um, I've done NaNoWriMo several times, and because I've been writing Earthlinger Chronicles for five years, I haven't really <laughs> gotten a chance to finish those projects. Um, and they've been in different stages. Like, I would go back to them in between, like, while something was with the copy editor, or, you know, various stages where I didn't have to, to look at it. But yeah, at this point, it's it's become clear that whenever I get back to them, it'll just... They'll be brand new and and all that work. I mean, it's in my brain, so I think it'll yeah. be it's fertile ground, you know. And the process of writing a novel is worthwhile in the first place because you just clear out the pipes and you learn how to put the words down and structure the story and mm-hmm. all of that. Yeah. Yeah. So so let's go back in time. Um, I'm curious. Let's let's go all the way back. Where where did you grow up? I grew up, um, I spent, let's see, moved around a little bit. My father was in the Secret Service. and uh, He was? Yeah, he was a Secret uh-huh. Service agent. He did protection work. Um, for those who remember Vice President Quayle, that was his biggest detail. He did Vice oh President Quayle his family. Um, but he wow. did various uh, people, pres- you know, presidential candidates, foreign leaders uh, for many years. He was in the Secret Service for almost 30 years. And... Um, there was actually a case uh, maybe 10 or 20 years ago, a lawsuit brought on by black secret service agents because they were getting moved far more than white, their white. Um, Shocking. Yeah. yeah. So I was born in New York and then we lived in DC and then New Jersey and finally Maryland. So I call Maryland home. I, cause I've lived here since I was about 10, but the first 10 years we moved around a lot. And, and you have a brother. I do have a younger brother, Paul. His name is Paul James. He's an actor. He's a famous actor. I guess he's semi-famous. I don't know. Well, <laughs> he has I an mean, IMDb page. Like you could see him on your TV as opposed to people who have a brother who's an actor who mostly waits tables. You know, it's like. Yes. You can see him <laughs> on your TV. He was um, he was the star of the show called Soundtrack on Netflix, and which I enjoyed a lot. It only got one season, but it was great. You should check it out. <laughs> you know, and I enjoyed that 
I, I watched the whole thing and I enjoyed it too. And I thought he did a great job. And, and I'm not just saying that. Yes. Yeah. And he actually is cast in something new right before the pandemic. So I don't know when they'll start shooting, but um, I don't know the name of the show. I'll, I'll be talking about it when I know more about it. But he does have a job waiting for him when, when they're able to film again. Yeah, that's the poor actors have really been hit hard. Yeah, and the acting life is uh, one of a lot of waiting around anyway. So I guess they get to develop a lot of hobbies. <laughs> He's been playing the guitar <laughs> a lot. So. Well, that's cool. Yeah. So, so you and your brother um, both kind of ended up going into artistic careers, creative careers, yeah. which is unusual for um, the children of, say, a Secret Service agent. Well, my parents were actually both frustrated artists. My mother uh -huh. had wanted to be an actor, and she had acted in college, and my father was a painter. And neither of their parents allowed them to pursue arts because their parents wanted them to eat. So um, my father taught art before he was drafted into Vietnam, and my mom when it became a teacher. She was a special education teacher um, for her whole career. So when her, their kids came out as artists and, you know, they just relived their frustration and was like, you can do whatever you want to do. Um, there are people out there who are successful at it and who are able to feed themselves. So you just make sure that you're one of those people. And <laughs> so they were always super supportive. That's really cool. Yeah. And so you ended up, I know you went to college for, uh, in filmmaking, right? Mm -hmm. I studied film. My major was in uh, radio TV film with a film focus at Howard University. And I minored in computer science because I I always have kind of been equal left brain, right brain. Yeah. And I, when I went, I wasn't sure which, which major I was going to do. It was between film and computer science. And I actually decided to do film because I got a scholarship from the School of Communication. So I was like, okay, that, that settles it. Oh, that's nice. And so had you already been doing some kinds of film stuff that you got the scholarship? Uh, a little tiny bit. I wasn't one of those kids who, you know, had the video camera to their eye all the time. I was always a writer. And um, so we were very creative as kids, but we were doing like radio shows and putting on plays and weird things like that. So <laughs> in the barn, in the old barn. In the barn. We got a barn. <laughs> <laughs> on the deck. <laughs> um, I'm trying to remember how the School of Communications scholar I think it was just I applied for it. Like I don't know exactly how it came out that that was the school I got the the scholarship from. Um, but yeah, I, so I was creative, but the film thing was not out of the blue, but it wasn't what I'd spend my childhood doing. Uh -huh. But I figured I could write scre screenplays, and then I became really interested in editing when I got to college. And I thought I would become an editor uh, after I left. And I was because you were doing like the literary magazine thing, and oh, I meant video editing. Um, oh, video yeah. editing. Okay, yeah, film editing. I got my first job after college was at a, a K Street, uh, which is in DC. K Street is like the street where all the PR firms are. Um, it was a video production company, and I was a dubber. I was dubbing tapes, and then I became an assistant editor. And then I decided work wasn't for me and I was going to go back to grad school. <laughs> Did that work or work in general? Just having a job in general. I was <laughs> After a year of that, I was like, hmm, what else can I do with myself? <laughs> I mean, I ended up working. Too funny. My, 
<laughs> You're too funny. You're like, oh, I don't really like having a job. <laughs> I mean, I had to have a job when I was in grad school too, but uh, I, yeah, like that job was fine. It was just like, okay, I think I need to figure something else out and just tweak this a little bit. <laughs> Well, you know, and I do think that we have different temperaments that way, you know, like I had worked for a while in a lab where, you know, I had to be there from like eight to five mm. and whether I had anything to do or not. And it, I'm, I'm definitely a person where I work in concentrated bursts and oh, yeah. I get my work done and then I don't want to have to like, just be there. Yeah. <laughs> doing busy work. Right. I mean, yeah. if you if you can accomplish, I used to have this job where I could get everything I needed done within two hours and I had to be there the rest of the day. And I was like, I'm done. <laughs> can I leave? Yeah, why can't I go home? <laughs> it's why eventually becoming self-employed uh, worked out really well for me. Um, so, at first, so that's I, I how you ended it. up using the computer science degree, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I went to grad school. I have a master's in multimedia. And then um, I moved back home for a while. I and then I got a job with uh, a defense contractor. <laughs> because if you live in the D.C. area, you work for a defense contractor or you work for the government or some other kind yeah. of contractor generally. But I was making multimedia for the Department of Defense and making like websites for uh, counter mines and counterterrorism things. And I just wow. felt like I was supporting something I didn't want to be supporting. This is kind of like your dad working for Dan Quayle again. I mean, it's... Right. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I was like, if someone shoots quail, are you really going to jump in front of that bullet? <laughs> did you and ask like, him that? Yeah, people would ask him that all the time, especially when, but yeah, I did. And he was like, well, you know, you try to push him away. You try to like avoid it. That was like the diplomatic answer they gave. Right. Uh, but yeah, I don't, am I going to lose my dad for quail? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> But, you know, I admire that about the Secret Service agents. I think about the ones guarding Trump and everything. And it's like, you know, you have to do yeah. your job by the office, no matter what your personal feelings are. But You don't wow. have to choose who you protect. And that, yeah. that must be tough. Yeah. It actually would be a very interesting character to write. True. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um, okay. So, so that was a tangent. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Department of I mean, Defense Contractor. Um, and then I got a job at Johns Hopkins University. And this was about the time I had started freelancing and uh, starting my own business by making websites for my friends at first. I had a lot of friends who were artists and musicians and DJs and rappers. And so I started making websites for them. Um, and so I took a job at Johns Hopkins. I worked at Morgan State University for a while, working with students, um, doing uh, some teaching of workshops. I didn't, I wasn't a professor uh, necessarily, but I did a lot of that extra stuff, um, workshops and things like that. I worked on the websites for, for Morgan State University. And then finally, I took the leap and went full time with my own business making websites. Yeah. And, and you still do that today? Yes, that is my that is my job. I own my own business uh, as a website developer. And I work with a lot of medium and small businesses. Um, I don't get to work with artists that much anymore, although I do some authors when I can just out of love well I mean I do charge them <laughs> but it's like <laughs> well, you know it can be both <laughs> right yeah it's it's I try to charge a decent rate because I know you know we're authors we're not all of us rolling in the dough so right we wish <laughs> <laughs> so 
how did you end up transitioning in there into starting to write? So I had always written a little bit. I kept journals. I wrote short stories, but I was not thinking about publishing. Um, But when I got married in 2008 and we moved down to Norfolk, Virginia for my husband's residency, I didn't know anyone. Um, I was able to move my business really easily since everything was virtual. So that didn't stop. But I was working from home in a new city. And even though I'm an introvert, I do like to get out of the house sometimes. (laughs) So I started taking the writing classes at the Muse Writer Center in Norfolk, Virginia. And um, that was really when I got back into the writing. I I took whatever classes I could. I took meditation for writers, songwriting, poetry, uh, flash fiction, and then fiction. And I got into this ongoing fiction workshop with mostly the same people. And we would sign up, you know, each semester, we would sign up with, with the same people. So we would follow each other's stories as they were emerging. And How fun. That led me into looking at other workshops. So then I started going to like the week-long summer writing workshops at uh, Hurston Wright and at Vona and meeting more writers and and having that become a bigger part of my life and and really getting back into that love of it and the desire to actually get something published. And your husband was supportive? Oh, yeah. He was, he was definitely supportive. Uh, my husband, even though he's a physician and he's in that field, he was also a drummer. He's also creative in his own way. Uh-huh. And one of the first things we did when we started dating, there was this contest, uh, this script writing contest. I can't remember what it was for, but we wrote a short script together. And so he has always been really supportive of me as a whatever I wanted to do, basically. And, and how did you meet him? <laughs> we met on MySpace. Oh, you did remember that. We, what, yes. I've never heard of MySpace. What is MySpace? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you're, if you're born before 2000, I don't know. But um, <laughs> yeah, like, so MySpace was a social media network similar to Facebook. Uh, that like totally got trumped on by Facebook. It just. Yeah, I got trumped. Apart. Yeah. yeah. I think it exists in some form, but it, it was the thing. Like we, there was Friendster. And there was MySpace. And this was still when to get on Facebook, you needed a, an EDU email address because it was only for college people. Right. Um, so, yeah, I was on MySpace. I got a message uh, from a person I didn't know. <laughs> and I would get messages from guys sometimes, you know. Um, well, we, yeah. And, and they're almost always creepy, right? You know, it's like. Yeah, sometimes they were creepy. And, I, and you know, this one wasn't necessarily creepy. And I, I saved it. I don't have it. I haven't read it in a long time. But um, he was in Maryland. And I think we had, a, I looked at his profile. And we had a couple of mutual friends, you know, in common. Uh, so, yeah, we just started messaging back and forth. And, oh, I remember what, what happened. So on, on MySpace, there was a, a field where it was like, who do you want to meet? And I said, I want to meet someone who knows what movie this quote was from. And I gave a quote from a very obscure independent film that I loved. And so he messaged me and he was like, oh, um, that quote was from the movie Trust by Hal Hartley. And I was like, you've seen Trust? Oh, my God. And this was before you could Google things like that. Well, it was not because he had not seen Trust. He had Googled (gasps) it. (laughs) Oh, my God. Really? (laughs) 
<laughs> he had Google. So I, I found out pretty quickly that he had not seen this movie. Like he was not the type of person who had seen this very independent film. Um, but but points for effort, right? Yes, that was his. That was his game. I mean, like <laughs> as in spitting game to women. <laughs> and you know, it worked. What can I say? <laughs> it did work. He landed you. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, we eventually. Um, we met up our first date. It snowed like a foot. <laughs> our first date was three days before Valentine's Day. And oh. it snowed a foot here. And we were driving around in the snow. And it was a very memorable first date. <laughs> you know, that's that's funny because my first date with David was on Super Bowl Sunday. Oh. And it was minus 19 degrees. And it was like the worst date in the history of humankind. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So that's funny that we have that. We have a lot of things in common, which I find very interesting. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it was a very interesting date. The first, so we get in the car. He picks me up at my house. We get in the car. We're on 95 going to Baltimore. And he starts talking about all these car accidents he's been in. And I'm like, oh, no, I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> no, no. I was like, why is he telling me this as he's driving me as it's starting to snow a little bit? And he's talking about spinning out and going in this car. And I'm like, who is this person? <laughs> and he's oblivious, right? He's like, yeah. <laughs> he had the whole idea. Of, he had a very uh, different perspective on the whole idea of first dates and impressing people. <laughs> but you clicked. We did. We clicked. And by the end of the first date, I knew that I was going to marry him. You really? I did. People had always said things like that. And I'm like, I don't know. That doesn't make any sense to me. How, how does that work? And then it happened to me. And I was like, oh, I get it. I understand now. Wow. Did he know? Uh, I don't think I've ever asked him. I should ask him that. I don't know if he knew. Well, how long before you did get married? Or how long before you got engaged? So that was February. We got engaged uh, December of the next year. So almost two years. Yeah. He proposed on Christmas Eve. Oh. Yeah. Was it romantic? I mean, it was, We. my mom always has this big Christmas Eve party with all my family. So it was in front of all my family. So I guess it's not, not exactly romantic, but it was very sweet. <laughs> and were you surprised or were you, did you kind of know? I kind of knew because um, we, when we met, he was in medical school. And so it was March of the next, the second year that we were, t well, February would be our first year. So a, a year and a month is when they have match day. So med students match with their prospective residencies. And so I knew that he was leaving because he matched in, there were two places, there were two options. It was going to be either Norfolk, Virginia or Pittsburgh. And I told him, I'm not really into long distance relationships. I was like 28 at the time. He, he's two years younger than I am. Oh. So I kind of told him around match a couple months after. I was like, you know, I understand that you're younger and you might not be ready, but I own my own house. I own my own business. So if we're not getting married and you leave, that's kind of going to be it. So I figured <laughs> if he wanted to stay with me, he was going to propose. <laughs> <laughs> so he he came up with the, the ring and everything, huh? Yes, he did. <laughs> he put a ring on it. He put a ring on it. <laughs> <clears throat> and now you've been together how long? Um, we'll be married for 12 years in October. Is that right? Yes. And uh, so we met 
I don't know, it'll be almost in February of next year, it'll be 15 years Uh together. Yeah. Lovely. So um, you have your book coming out next week. And so I know that the future is a little bit in motion, but do you think, what are you thinking so far as trad pub versus self pub in your future? Still going to do, going to be hybrid? Yes, I do plan to be hybrid. I like both because I like, you know, I'm a control freak. I will admit to that. And I like doing all of the things with self-pub. I like making the eBooks. I like making the print books, um, choosing a uh, an editor and a, a cover designer. I like all that stuff. Marketing and selling self-published books is really hard. And I don't like that part. So even even though you still have to do all of that stuff with ChatPub, um, but I also like having a team of people who have expertise and are there to help you. I like seeing my book in bookstores also, and having that that kind of sort of wider reach. Um, and ChatPub allows me things like um, there's opportunities that it gives you that you can't get or that are very difficult to get if you're self-published, like speaking at certain conferences. And there have just been opportunities to meet people that I wouldn't have as a solely self-published author. So there's certain projects that I'm going to give to my Sarah to try and sell. And there's other projects that I would, that I think that are a better fit for Mm -hmm. self-publishing. And then whatever I don't sell to New York, uh, I'm happy to self-publish as well, just to get it out there. Yeah. And we're doing a self-published project together. Yes. Under a winter sky. Yes. I'm excited about that. I am too. Um, you know, Melissa Marr already sent me her story. Ah, overachiever. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yeah. So, and and then Grace Draven's going to be our fourth, and yes. I think that'll be amazing. Yeah, Melissa Marr is just like totally ahead of the game on this. She's coming out with the novel that her novella is related to. I think, um, I don't know, in another month, something like that. Okay, that's good synergy. Yeah, yeah. And and yours is going to be a novella in this same world as Earthsinger Chronicles, right? Yes, it's going to be the third novella and a prequel to book four. So a good lead in. It happens 500 years earlier, but it is it has a character that appears in book four. So that's You know, I'm only thinking. people who write like historical fantasy <laughs> can, can say things like call, call something that happened 500 years earlier a prequel. Because I totally get you. But <laughs> yeah, no, it's going to make perfect sense. <laughs> Oh, that sounds awesome. I'm excited. Have you figured out what you're going to do? Sort of. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> I do. Um, you know, because I've been writing this this new book, uh, The Dark Wizard Story, that mm-hmm. my Sarah wants to take out on submission. And Grace has pretty 98% convinced me that I should write a prequel novella to that. Ah, very yeah. cool. So I think that's probably what it's going to be. I think I even have an idea for it. So great. I'm, I'm getting there. <laughs> I, I don't have to have it written till October. So <laughs> yeah, mine is I had to push it out because I sold the audio rights to the novellas to audible and they want them earlier. So I'm going to be pushing to get this done by the end of September. All right. You and I, we will uh, be working together on this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think that, did you have anything else you wanted to share on the release or? 
there is oh by the time this comes out the the book will probably be out but i'm doing a pre-order campaign um there's an extra epilogue oh, no, and it'll be i'm available. probably gonna post this today oh okay awesome well yeah if, if you're listening in real time um <laughs> I'm doing a pre-order campaign for Cry of Metal and Bone, and if you send in your receipt or your library request, you can get swag in the mail plus a bonus epilogue. So I've written a 10,000-word bonus epilogue to Cry of Metal and Bone. And ah. I love it. It's very sweet. Um, so yeah, uh, check my website, which is lpenelope.com, if you are interested in that. And we'll put that in the show notes, too, so people can reference it. Cool. All right. And I realized I never did ask you what your morning beverage of choice was. Are are you drinking anything right now? I am. I have a cup of jasmine green tea. Ah. It's this fancy tea. Normally just get like Bigelow. Like I'm not super picky about my teas, but my husband brought home this like fancy tea. It's called Rishi. It looks expensive. He said it was. And it's delicious. <laughs> it's the best jasmine green tea I've had. So that is what I'm drinking. Is it loose leaf or is it, it is not. It's in a bag. I like loose leaf, but I often don't have the time to deal with that. So, <laughs> yeah, I like my loose leaf tea, but it is a bit of a fuss. Right? Yeah. Well, it was really fun getting to chat with you. Yes, it was great. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, yeah. And uh, congratulations on the release of the book, uh, Cry of Metal and Bone, out on August 11th. Thank you. And. Both Leslie and I are part of the, Leslie has a podcast, I should have said, called My Imaginary Friends. Yes, it's um, myimaginaryfriendsshow.com. It is my, and I was inspired by this podcast. Which I do. just find so flattering. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I don't do it as often. Mine is once a week. <laughs> Props to you for being able to do four times a week. <laughs> but yeah, it's great. I, I really enjoy doing the podcast every week. Yeah, it's great. I enjoy listening to it. And so both podcasts are part of the Frolic Media Podcast Network. And you'll find even other podcasts that you'll love at frolic.media slash, slash podcasts. And um, I will be back on Thursday. You can catch uh, Leslie's podcast. Um, usually get it up on like Sundays, Mondays. Mondays it comes out, yeah. Mondays. So, all right. Well, uh, thank you again for being here, Leslie. Thank you. And you all take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>